To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com slash marketplace to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com slash bonds. That interest rate cut that people were banking on coming sooner rather than later? Maybe not so fast. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Thursday today. This one is the 11th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. While one cannot, of course, know what lurks in the heart of the Federal Reserve, today is not quite as good as people had been hoping for. A report on inflation will likely give the central bank just a little bit of pause. Yes, the core consumer price index for December came in at 3.9% year-on-year. That is down from a 4% annual rate in November. Also, yes, the CPI is way down from its pandemic peak. The catch here is that that core rate strips out food and energy. Makes sense if you're a central banker. Those sectors bounce around a whole lot. You want a better idea of where things are going. But it makes no sense if you're a person because food... Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval swung by some supermarkets in Houston. In the parking lot of the Fiesta supermarket in southwest Houston, I catch up with Ahenis Rodriguez as she loads grocery bags into the back seat of her blue Nissan. Compré unas verduras, unos plátanos. Today, she's taking home vegetables, bananas, chicken to make chicken soup. Tostadas, flour, candy. Total cost, $126. She says she'll make this stretch for two weeks or so for her family of three. She finds prices to be Muy elevado. much higher, especially for things like chips, soda, chicken, and eggs, which increased nearly 9% in price from November to December. Also shopping at Fiesta today is Rocio Garcia, whose cart is filled with onions and dozens of ramen noodle packages. They're cheap and easy. Put in hot water and there's your meal. And then if you try to cook a meal, it's like $50 for just a meal to cook for the family. She's got 10 mouths to feed at home between her mom, her brother, and nephews, while also managing higher water bills and property taxes. She actually works at Fiesta and says her pay isn't keeping up with inflation. They don't give uh, raises or anything or bonuses, you know, nothing like that. Just a few minutes away from the Fiesta, outside a Kroger, I talk to another shopper, Becky Hines. And these, uh, these are collard greens. They were $1.48 a bag, which is a good price. Hines loves coupons and shops sales at different stores. 
everything's more expensive. The, the good stuff, like the fish and everything, out of, out of sight. It's just too high. We love fish, but we can't buy it as much as we'd like. She's buying for her and her husband, plus her daughter's family. I cook for six people, six of us. So, you know, I, I try to really economize. These days, she says she's putting into practice what her mom taught her, how to make cheap, nutritious meals that last. In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. On Wall Street today, flatty, flat, flat, flat. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. The Federal Aviation Administration said today it's opening a formal investigation into whether Boeing and its subcontractors built the 737 MAX 9 by the book. The book being the safety and design protocols approved by the FAA. There are, of course, volumes yet to be written and said about that safety investigation. But Boeing is a key manufacturer in a key global industry. So we are going to talk about that right now. David Slotnick is the senior aviation business reporter at the travel blog, The Points Guy. David, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about um, the big picture. As I said, key manufacturer in a key global industry. It is, I think, by dollar value. Boeing is the biggest American exporter. Discuss. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Boeing is sort of the quintessential American company. They still manufacture here. They build, um, you know, airplanes to fly all around the world. It's a crucial company for the U.S. Uh, there's a whole defense side to it. Obviously, that's mm-hmm. a big one too. Um, you know, and when this kind of thing happens, obviously, that's not good for really the economy at large. This is also a reputational problem for Boeing, right? Building on the crashes uh, of Malaysia Air and Ethiopia in 2019 that killed something like 350 people. Now there's a real confidence problem in Boeing's key product. That's exactly right. You know, it was a design flaw before that caused the initial two crashes. Mm -hmm. That's been addressed. And this is looking, uh, you know, pending the investigation, more like a manufacturing error. The problem is Boeing has done a tremendous amount of work over the last five years to try and fix its reputation, improve its image uh, with both the flying public and with airlines who don't want to see their fleets grounded uh, for any significant length of time or see accidents like we saw last week. Uh, for Boeing, this this really just couldn't possibly come at yeah. a worse time. Um, it, it's selling airplanes. It's trying to move. And you know, people who've gotten back on the 737 MAX are going to be concerned in a way that I think they haven't been in since 2019, 2020. Right. Alaska and United, which I think operate all of the U.S.-based 737 MAX 9s, um, are obviously not flying them now. I'm sure the CEOs of both of those airlines are on the phone with the CEO of Boeing saying, you got to give me some make goods here, yeah? Yeah. What we saw happen last time was uh, they obviously, Boeing did compensate the airlines that had the planes grounded. Uh, they made up for the uh, lost flights, the lost revenue that, from those flights that they couldn't operate. And I think Boeing said it was about a $20.7 billion hit hmm. all in all. Uh, so that's from two years of postponed deliveries from the repairs they had to make and from compensation for the grounded flights. So the impact from that, I think, remains to be seen. It depends how long the grounding lasts, but it's certainly not negligible. 
Right. Uh, we were having a conversation about this story uh, around the dinner table last night at my house. And one of my kids said to me, well, Dad, why don't they just go buy Airbuses? And I said, look, if you order an Airbus today, I think you get it in like 2032 or something. So there's that backlog problem. And also, um, there's only two that make these kinds of airplanes. Yeah, it's been a duopoly for a number of years now. Uh, we've had a lot of consolidation in the industry uh, in the U.S. All of the other plane makers are basically part of Boeing now. Hmm. And, you know, it's a situation where uh, airlines are still going to go back. They're going to order from Boeing because, like you say, both of the plane makers are really in this um, kind of backlog. Uh, Airbus, it's till the 2030s. It's going to be about the same for Boeing. So there isn't really tremendously much choice and just going to Airbus isn't a viable option. So net net, what happens to Boeing? Do they keep, and we got like a half a minute, do they keep just plugging along like this? They're going to have to do something to address the quality control. They're not going to be uh, allowed to continue like this, but it obviously raises future concerns. Is this something that we're going to see happen again? Is this a systemic problem? Is this really just a one-off maybe? Right. David Slotnick uh, at uh, The Points Guy. David, thanks a lot. Appreciate your time and your expertise. Thanks so much. We talked a little bit about wholesale inventories yesterday, how a lot of businesses are trying to avoid ordering too much stuff because consumers haven't been buying as much stuff. That is good news for inflation, as we mentioned, and the soft landing hopes of the Federal Reserve as well. But spare a thought here for the companies that have had to get rid of their excess inventory, because even though wholesale inventories are down from where they were 12 months ago, there are plenty of sectors in this economy where inventories are still too high. Marketplace's Justin Ho has that one. It's been about six months since Frankisha Watkins first started noticing that her inventories were too high. She runs Be Polished Beauty Supply, a store in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. What we've been doing is, you know, running some sales um, to try to get rid of some dead stock that we have, things that are no longer moving. Watkins says she thought the holiday season would help, but it kind of didn't. So we were actually pretty slow, but, you know, I talked to people in the business and it's just not, it wasn't just me. It's like across the board. Other businesses that are still trying to get rid of excess inventory include appliance wholesalers, clothing companies. And that has ripple effects throughout the economy, says Jason Miller, a professor of supply chain management at Michigan State University. That's fewer orders to manufacturers. That means there's fewer imports, which means there's less freight for trucking companies to move. And that's caused a lot of companies to struggle for a while now. Jeff Cayley is the CEO of Worldwide Cyclery. He says the bike industry has been oversupplied since the end of 2022. There has been some bankruptcies and there's just been a, a number of you know brands in the industry that are, yeah, they're, they're just in bad shape. Last month, one bike brand put on a buy one, get one free sale for bikes that cost several thousand dollars. Kaylee says consumers are starting to expect deep discounts. And even though he says his company is doing okay, it's been offering markdowns too. We did a whole sale around deflation and called it the deflation sale. And the the discount code you used on the website was actually just titled deflation. Kaylee says in his industry, it'll probably take another 12 months for inventories to get where they need to be. 
I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. As Republicans in the House of Representatives try to decide again whether to fund the federal government, the list of things undone includes a renewal of the Farm Bill, which is, yes, about farming from crop insurance to agricultural loans, but also things like food assistance for low-income Americans. And soon it might also include rural child care. The next bill is expected to make federal money available to improve and expand daycare options in rural parts of the country for the first time. But as Marketplace's Savannah Marr reports, farming families say that's a long-simmering problem. Gracie Viramontes is a six-year-old with a job, sort of. My name's Gracie, and I have a farm. She and her eight-year-old brother, Caden, are fourth-generation New Mexico farm kids. We grow cotton, we grow chili, we grow um, onions, pumpkins. All on about 500 acres in Deming, where Gracie and Caden hang out a lot. At the tail end of the cotton harvest season, they're showing me around with their mom, Jamie. And say the seed and the lint both have a purpose, right? Yeah. Yeah. What does cotton make? Underwear. <laughs> and what else? And it clothes. Makes your clothes. Mm-hmm. And your shirt, your pants. Ever since they became parents, Jamie Viramontes and her husband Cole have been taking their kids to work. A lot of times I had a baby on my hip and I was walking around the watermelon shed helping, you know, make sure things were flowing smoothly. Gracie and Kaden are in elementary school now, but back when they were littler, mom would cobble together coverage during the farm's busy seasons. A few hours with a babysitter here, a favor from a family member there. But the handful of child care centers in rural Deming were never really an option. The majority of daycares are not open until 11, 12 o'clock at night. So if you're running a produce packing facility and you're shipping out trucks... Late at night or early in the morning or on the weekend, then the kids just might have to tag along. But it's not always an easy option. It takes you 10 times longer to do any task, and it's definitely much harder. Three quarters of farming families say they have trouble finding childcare, mostly because of cost, distance to care, or scheduling incompatibility, according to research by Shoshana Inwood, a rural sociologist at The Ohio State University. When we talk about farm profitability and farm viability, issues of childcare are often absent from the conversation. Even though most American farms are family businesses, Inwood says agriculture has been slow to acknowledge how those childcare issues impact the whole sector. In fact, they're often the elephant in the room. Maybe not for long, now that two of the most influential farm lobbies are looking for solutions to the rural childcare shortage. Layla Sobranis with the National Farmers Union says the sector is waking up to a demographics problem. With the average age of a farmer being 58. She says ag needs to remove barriers for young people. Also empowering women to be a part of decision making and be a part of farming as well. Rather than assuming they'll stick to care work on the family farm, 
The Expanding Child Care in Rural America Act has bipartisan support for inclusion in the next farm bill. It would make loans and grants available to help rural child care centers improve their facilities, hire more staff. If that gets put into the farm bill, that is, a, I think, a very important and encouraging change. Adam Olson farms corn and soybeans in northwest Indiana. He also runs Appleseed Childhood Education, a nonprofit early learning center in his rural town that he says could expand hours and capacity with federal support. We view it as infrastructure, right? We view it like having broadband. We view it like having a strong healthcare system. A tool to keep the local economy afloat and attract young families. Something Jamie Viramontes says rural communities need to invest in. We as entrepreneurs are trying our hardest to continue carrying on this legacy of the farm. Depending on when a farm bill gets passed, federal help may not come too late for the Viramontes family. They're sorting out the childcare puzzle all over again, with their newest farm kid due at the end of January. In Deming, New Mexico, I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Coming up. It's really about kitchen maximization. And that's why the toaster belongs in the cabinet, people. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials, as I said, flat 37,711. The NASDAQ also flat 14,970. S&P 500 flat 4780. I mean, we're talking like single digit points. Rental car company Hertz announced it's going to sell off about a third of its electric car fleet or about 20,000 EVs. Might remember back in 2021, the company committed to buying 100,000 Teslas to offer as rentals, but apparently customer demand for the cleaner vehicles was weak and repair costs are high. Hertz now says it will reinvest in gas-powered cars to replace the sold-off EVs. Hertz shares drove down four and three-tenths percent. Also, climate, people. Bonds up the yield on the 10-year T-note down 3.97%. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. It occurs to me we're kind of doing the Maslow's hierarchy of needs version of inflation today, that bottom layer of the pyramid, physiological needs. Elizabeth Troval started us off with food. Stephanie Hughes is going to take over now with shelter. Rent was up 6.5% in December from a year ago, the thing that's most responsible for inflation being as sticky as it is. But the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures shelter makes it more of a lagging indicator which affects the inflation readings we are getting. Here's Stephanie. When the Labor Department measures rent prices, it looks at both places that people are just moving into and ones where they're re-upping their leases. And if someone's renewing, they're less likely to have to pay market rate, says Steve Reed, an economist with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Because my landlord might not be able, by law, to make a big adjustment. He might not want to incur the wrath of all his tenants by making a big adjustment. Also, the BLS checks in on different rentals in its sample every six months. So if a rent goes up, it can take a minute for that to be reflected in the data. UBS economist Alan Detmeister says all this means the shelter price index in the CPI tends to lag behind other indices from rental and real estate companies, which show that market rents, new lease rents, have been 
running pretty similar to their pre-pandemic pace um, for roughly a year, maybe a little over a year now. Whereas the BLS index, he points out, shows rents are increasing almost twice as fast as they were before the pandemic. Also, Detmeister says shelter data weighs heavier in the CPI than it does in the inflation index preferred by the Fed, the PCE. The fact that any one number can really move around your overall inflation basket is, I think, a bit problematic. But also, it is the biggest uh, cost for most people. These are all factors BlackRock investment strategist Gargi Chaudhry takes into account when she looks at the CPI or any data point. I think the broader way to think about it is let's look at a bunch of different data. Let's look at the trend of that data and let's not get too caught up in the volatility of one month's data point. She says it's good to have a healthy respect for what the data is showing, acknowledge its imperfections and to not hone in too much on any one indicator. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. You know that thing where a thing has a price and then you pay it and then you get the thing? That's true in a good part of economic life. A six-pack of beer at the grocery store, a new pair of shoes maybe, whatever electronic device you might have your eye on. There is also, though, times when the price for a thing isn't always the price for a thing, when prices change all the time. Dynamic pricing is one name for that. And it's not new. You've probably experienced it. But there is one particular industry where it hasn't quite caught on. Till now, Marketplace's Sabree Benishore has that one. Surge pricing is why Ubers and Lyfts cost more when it's raining. Airline tickets, hotel prices change constantly. Even the price of electricity can change hour by hour. The point of this is partly to manage supply and demand instantaneously, which is kind of hard if you are a restaurant. If you think restaurants, menus, things are printed. People are used to coming into a restaurant, receiving a menu. It's sort of fixed. Timothy Webb is an assistant professor at the University of Delaware's Hospitality and Sport Business Management Program. Industries that can change prices in real time have the technology to do that. Restaurants, not as much. Until the pandemic. After the pandemic drove the industry toward more digitization, then it became much more easy to change prices based on a variety of factors multiple times. Ashwin Kamlani is CEO of Juicer. It sells a service that allows restaurants to rapidly change their prices on their digital menus, their drive throughs Its clients include Saladbox and Carrot Express. Basically, with digitization, restaurants have unlocked new capitalism powers. Powers like surge dining? So, look, as a company, we avoid using the word surge because to me, as an Uber customer... Surge means quite a drastic increase, two, three, or maybe four times the price of what it normally is. That is not what we're talking about here. Kamalani says we're talking about a difference of like 50 cents or so here and there. Super Bowl Sunday and everyone's ordering wings, price might go up slightly, he says. But more likely than raising prices is actually lowering them. If there are slow times in a restaurant, and there always are, those are great, great times for restaurants to use discounts. Noah Glass is CEO of Olo, an online ordering platform used by restaurants like P.F. Chang's and Five Guys. It's really about kitchen maximization. 
Chains like Dave & Buster's are already rolling out dynamic pricing models. Restaurants could soon start using rapidly changing prices to manage their inventory. Chicken is running low or chicken is running high and we need to sell more chicken. So have a flash sale on chicken. Now, when airlines and hotels do this whole changing price thing, they're actually doing more than just managing supply and demand. They're also targeting customers. Like airlines know that business travelers tend to book late and they can take advantage of that market. Again, Tim Webb at the University of Delaware. A business traveler is not going to miss a meeting for a million-dollar deal over $100 on a flight. So last-minute bookings cost more. But the higher price also ensures that there's seats for those customers, too. Setting aside seats for high-paying customers at a restaurant is kind of tricky. And you can't put preference to seating one guest over another, right? Not in person, but online. Oh, yes, you can. There are apps now like Dorsia that let high-paying diners make last-minute reservations at places they would otherwise not be able to. The online environment and delivery naturally creates two different segments, two different customer bases. Restaurants know who is ordering through Uber Eats and DoorDash, and they sometimes charge those customers more because the delivery services take a cut and these kinds of orders aren't as profitable for the restaurant. Olo's Noah Glass says on really busy days, some restaurants raise delivery prices temporarily so they can focus on more profitable sit-down diners. It would be silly for a restaurant not to prioritize their most profitable channels first. But targeting can work in favor of customers too, says Juicer CEO Ashwan Kamlani. If it's a really busy night, I might say, okay, look, for first-time people who are ordering, I'm going to increase the prices a little bit because there's so much demand. But As a thank you to my loyal customers, I'm going to maintain the original price. So in a lot of ways, the brave new world of restaurants is a lot like the old world. Happy hours, dinner specials, giving thank yous to regulars, just digital, data-driven, and a lot more fine-tuned. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshour for Marketplace. Final note on the way out today, some data tidbit from Nick Bloom. He's an economist at Stanford that we talk to every now and then. Working from home is the subject at hand. The data goes like this. Men, on average, save five minutes a day on grooming when they work from home. Women save 12 minutes a day. This one, though, is the one that got me. There's all kinds of data in there. Overall, 94.9% of people brush their teeth when they go to the office. 91.7% brush when they work from home. You guys, brush your teeth. John Buckley, John Gordon, Rick Card, Diane Parker, Amanda Peter, and Stephanie Seek are the Marketplace editing staff. Amir Bibawe is the managing editor. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM.